this podcast from the Triple Helix Cambridge February Café Scientifique event, sponsored by the Medical Research Council. I'm Mira Senthilingam from thenakedscientist.com. This month's café was in a new venue, the Bee Bar in Cambridge, where Graham Fraser from the Medical Research Council untangled the science behind Alzheimer's disease. He gave an insight into what the disease is, how it's caused and how scientists are trying to understand more to try and treat and prevent it. I caught up with him before the event to find out more about his work. Okay, so our group works on something called the Molecular Mechanisms of Neurodegeneration, which is a very long title, but basically it's looking at things like Alzheimer's disease and forms of dementia. Um, so we use a lot of different techniques. We use something called in vitro techniques, uh, which is basically biology in a test tube, and we also use animal models to study these diseases. In today's talk, you're focusing on Alzheimer's disease. That's kind of true, yeah. I mean, I, I focused on Alzheimer's disease because it's the most well-known form of these dementias. There, there are lots of other dementias which involve uh, the tau protein, which I'll be talking about. It's really the tau protein that's the main focus of our group. So what is the tau protein, then? Okay, so the tau protein is found in, in, a, in an abnormal state in an Alzheimer's patient's brain. If you look inside the nerve cells inside an Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's patient's brain, then you find these tangles inside the nerve cells made of tau protein. It's thought that these tangles cause neurodegeneration and damage to the brain. So what is Alzheimer's disease? Okay, so Alzheimer's disease is a form of dementia uh, which usually affects people over the age of 65. Um, it's a very progressive disease. It can last up to 20 years. The major symptoms of it are memory loss and sort of loss of spatial awareness, so loss of, sort of you know, your knowledge of your surroundings and your general orientation. Um, and people in late-stage Alzheimer's are basically bedridden and have to be looked after full-time by a full-time carer. And how prevalent is it thought to be? Because it's quite prevalent in the population today. Yeah, in the, in the UK um, there are around 800,000 people. Uh, worldwide it's estimated there are about 25 million. Uh, but the scary thing about this is that it's projected that these figures will double every 20 years. So at the moment it's 25 million worldwide. In 20 years, 50, 40 years, 100 and so on and so on. So the... Yeah, also the economic cost of Alzheimer's is huge. The amount of money it costs to look after a patient in late-stage Alzheimer's is enormous, so you can really sort of get a feel of how much this will cost the economy in the long run if we don't do something about it. And so what's thought to cause the disease? It's completely unknown. Um, there are risk factors that you can inherit which cause some forms of the disease, but to complicate things, you don't actually have to have these risk factors to get Alzheimer's disease. As I say, we just simply don't know exactly what causes it. But I guess, is it known what causes the effects of it? Uh, yes, uh, the effects we think are caused by the accumulation of the tau protein, which is what I work on, and also another protein called beta amyloid. So it's the accumulation of these proteins in the brain in an abnormal form which causes the symptoms of Alzheimer's. And so what are these proteins and how do they accumulate and, and have their effect? Uh, well, that's the million-dollar question. Um, we don't really know what beta amyloid protein, what, it, what its function is in the brain, but it, it kind of uh, it ends up in, a, in an abnormal state. Again, we don't know how, and it kind of sticks to the outside of nerve cells. Tau protein, we do know what it does. Its job is to stabilize the, the skeleton inside the cell, so it helps to maintain the cell's structure and form. Um, and during Alzheimer's disease, um, there are a few things that happen to it. It's modified, it changes its shape, and 
then all these tau molecules start to fit together in uh, these long things called filaments and cells end up full of these filaments and it's thought that these cause um, damage to the cells. And well this is where your research really comes in then, so how do you go about studying these filaments? There are three major ways that you can study these things. There is in vitro, which is in a test tube. So we can actually make tau protein, make it aggregate in a test tube. And this is useful. You can use chemicals to try and break up these filaments. Uh, You can modify the tau protein to to stop it forming filaments. But this method does have its limitations. You're taking one protein out of a cell and just looking at it on its own, which obviously has its limitations. The second method is called cell culture, so you can take, you can take nerve, nerve cells and grow them in a plastic dish, but the problem here is, is we don't know why, but it's very, very difficult to get tau filaments to form inside the cells in cell culture. So the best method that we have is the use of animal models. So we can actually make mice, which make human tau protein in the brain, and we can look at the formation of these tau filaments in, in a living, breathing brain, and that's really vital to our work. So what have you been able to see so far then, seeing it in action inside of a mouse's brain? Uh, well, we can see the spread of tau protein throughout different regions of the brain, which is very useful. Uh, the other great thing about using mice as opposed to looking at human samples is you can look at it over, over a range of time. You can look at early stage disease, which is something you can't do because you can't take a brain biopsy from a patient. We found out that tau is modified after it's made and if we have ways where we can change this modification and stop tau filaments from forming and another piece of work we published a few years ago was where we could detect the tau filaments in in a living brain without having to to dissect a mouse Uh, so early stage detection of Alzheimer's disease is very important so that was a really really key area. Well, you mentioned there then that you could see possible ways then to, pre- to prevent the filament of forming. So is this maybe an area that you'd want to progress to? Would this be the preventative measures, ideally? Possibly, yes. Um, there are a lot of pharmace- pharmaceutical companies working on this area and using uh, chemicals to inhibit this modification of tau protein. And I guess um, when it comes to the disease, is the, is the idea or the goal to prevent it or to treat it or ideally both, I guess? I, I would say both. Um, I think at the moment the best we can do is to treat the symptoms of it. So I think the ultimate goal would be prevention. If you, if you find out what causes the disease, obviously you can prevent it. That could be a, a long way off. We, don't, we just don't know. So I think at the moment um, treating the symptoms is the best we can do. Graham Fraser from the Medical Research Council bringing us the current research and development taking place with regard to Alzheimer's disease. Now, after the event, we opened up the floor to some rather informed audience questions. Do you think that it's feasible that you could design a drug that has a higher affinity for these tau proteins before they form filaments and ultimately find a cure for Alzheimer's? Anything that's targeted towards a protein would probably be a monoclonal antibody. That's a field that's really come on in the last sort of five to ten years. The problem with tau protein is that it's found on the inside of cells. Antibodies work best on the outside of cells, so that, that is the problem. You said uh, phosphorylation was involved in forming the filaments. Do you know what phosphorylates it then? Is there any particular proteins in that do that? You know, in normal brain, tau is phosphorylated. The more phosphorylated it is, the tau drops off the microtubule and it can move around a bit more. So it's kind of gives a bit of fluidity, a bit of movement to, to a cell. Um, there are enzymes which are called kinases, and 
these do all the phosphorylation in the cell. There's a very specific group of kinases that phosphorylate tau protein. And a lot of work with pharmaceutical companies is now looking at how to stop these kinases working and how to stop them phosphorylating tau. What do we know about what causes Alzheimer's in the, in, in the first place? Or what, whether, do we know about what lifestyle factors, have, if any, affect Alzheimer's? Uh, indeed, are you, are you born with it or is it something that just develops? What, what, perhaps you can tell us about what, what we know about that. Okay, the short answer is very, very little. It's known as sporadic Alzheimer's disease in its most common form. So whilst there, there are some form of Alzheimer's disease where you can inherit something called a risk factor that makes it far more likely that you'll develop Alzheimer's disease, for most people you don't have these risk factors and you still get Alzheimer's disease. Lifestyle-wise, according to the Daily Mail, it changes about every day as to what you should and shouldn't do. Um, so, I mean, there's no real hard and fast answer in, in, in how to avoid it. Is there any, does there appear to be any gender difference in the incidence um, of uh, the production of the tau protein? Uh, is there any difference between male mice and female mice? No, it's exactly the same. No difference at all. You mentioned that there, there is also similarities between uh, Alzheimer and mad cow, mad cow disease. Yeah, yeah. Can you let us know what okay, that is? Okay, yeah. Um, so mad cow disease is uh, caused by something called prion protein. So these prion proteins also form filaments uh, that destroy nerve cells. It's, it's a little bit different in prion disease in that you eats in meats infected with prion protein, this misfolded prion protein, and uh, through sort of ingestion into the stomach it gets up into the brain, and then it, if a prion protein, misfolded prion protein, hits a nerve cell, it can kind of transfer itself inside the cell, and all the prion protein which is naturally produced inside the cell becomes misfolded and forms filaments, okay? So with, with Alzheimer's disease, it was originally thought each cell that was made these tau proteins was kind of on its own. The tau protein couldn't escape, it was just in this one cell. But through a really clever set of experiments, this guy um, showed that you could take tau filaments from one mouse brain, inject it into a mouse that didn't have tau filaments, and then you could see the filaments spreading throughout the brain with prion-like properties. So you've identified the gene that results in the production of the tau protein? Yes. Is there any possible way to turn off that sequence of, of the DNA uh, strand and pre uh, prevent the production of the tau protein? Um, the problem that you would have is that if you got rid of tau completely, you're going to lose all the stability of your microtubule network. There are patients that are heterozygous for tau. So the only so for every gene you have two alleles, these patients only have one allele for tau for tau. So they make half as much tau protein. And they show severe mental retardation. So if you got rid of all tau protein, I'm guessing you'd be in a whole heap of trouble. Plus in terms of you know cell division, the microtubule network is hugely involved in splitting the cell into two. So if you disrupt that then you, you probably you probably wouldn't even be a viable embryo. Do mice have their own natural version of the tau protein, and how different is that to the human model? And if uh, so, how often do mice naturally get Alzheimer's? They, they don't. There is mouse tau, 
um, and it's expressed in quite high quantities. But they don't they don't show. We've never seen Alzheimer's in a mouse. But you have to consider a mouse only lives for two years, whereas you know a human lives for up to eighty years. Um, you have mentioned about uh, functional MRI scanning and things. And I understand from that that they have found that the cells in the brains that are affected in Alzheimer's use far less energy than normal cells. Yeah. It seems that there's some ed- energy deficit, and um, they, they found that feeding people on ketones helps to uh, get energy into the brain. And you know, they, they, they did a trial on a drug called Axona, which produced a lot of ketones, and 90% of the Alzheimer's patients benefited. I think there's quite a lot of literature talking about um, the effects on things called mitochondria, which are found in all cells, so kind of the, the energy powerhouse, they give, they give the cell all its, all its energy. And I, I think in Alzheimer's and Parkinson's as well, there is defects in the mitochondria. Um, do you know if tau phosphorylation is associated with cell aging? Because it's apparently that most of people got Alzheimer's disease are over 65 years old. So you're asking me if phosphorylation is a product of natural aging, is that? Yep. Yes, I, I think it is. It, it, it's sort of regarded that Alzheimer's disease is almost like the normal aging process gone a little bit wrong. Um, so tau is more phosphorylated in, in like a... 70, 80 year old person's brain than it is in a younger person's brain and you, in somebody who's 80 years old, with, with no Alzheimer's disease, you will find tau filaments, so, you know, something that does happen naturally, in Alzheimer's disease it just goes absolutely haywire though So, whilst scientists are getting more insight into the disease methods of prevention or treatment may still be a while away After the event, there were some drinks and nibbles during which I had a chance to catch up with some of the audience members to find out their thoughts on the evening. Um, it was really good. Um, the speaker was excellent, very clear. Um, he spoke to the level of, probably the lo- lower level of the room and allowed questions that were of um, more academic background. Um, and it was very good. Did you know much about Alzheimer's before? No, it's not a field that I've ever worked in. So Great, so you're the perfect target audience. So what did you learn about it perhaps or what did you find particularly interesting about it? I found it interesting that it seems to be prevalent in humans rather than across species as a whole and I wondered what, what we could learn from that and if it's just because humans live longer or whether it's, or whether it's something different in our, in our genes. Uh, I thought it was great. I don't have a, a biology background at all, um, but I, I found it interesting, easy to understand. Did you learn much about the disease that you didn't know or think about before even? Yes, uh, I didn't know a lot about Alzheimer's at all, and uh, it was really interesting. Um, does, does anything in particular kind of stick in your mind about it? I think just the level of understanding that, um, and the level of research that's been undertaken. Um, it almost seems like they're on the brink of some kind of discovery but not quite there yet i I thought it was great it seemed to be uh, a nice um, a comprehensive level of uh, explanation going from every everything which you from people who don't know what electron microscope is to talking about different ways of uh, tagging and uh, looking at 
different phenotypes later on. So no, no, it was good. Um, I guess it's the, the human aspect. Um, you can relate to it on different levels. Everyone's always got something they know or in their family, and it's just always good to hear a sort of an explained version you don't get the, the spin from the media with. So, so was it quite helpful then? And oh, did yeah, you learn very a lot? Insightful learning about the different proteins and the way things bond and so forth, and the way they're detecting it, and that's sort of the research behind it. The bit you don't really get to hear about. So. so will you be coming along to more cafes? I will indeed. So Graham reached his audience well on all levels and opened their eyes on the workings of an increasingly common disease. Now that's it for this month's podcast. But if you've enjoyed what you've heard so much that you'd like to attend a Café Scientifique for yourself, details of future events can be found online at cafescientifique.org forward slash Cambridge. The Triple Helix Cambridge Café Scientifique is sponsored by the Medical Research Council. And this podcast was produced by me, Mira Senthilingam, from thenakedscientists.com. <laughs>